In downtown Stockholm, on a cold evening at the end of February in 1986, a man and his wife are walking along the Sveavegen Boulevard. It's about 11.15 at night. The couple have just been to the city's old town, to the cinema, where they spent the evening with their son and his girlfriend for a performance of the Mozart Brothers, a comedy about an experimental production of Don Giovanni. And now, they're back out on the street. They stop and look briefly into a shop window and then carry on strolling down the boulevard. A few minutes later, a man comes up behind them and shoots them both in the back before running off down a side street. The first bullet goes through the back of the man's neck, severing his corroded artery. The second grazes the woman. By the time the man is brought to hospital, a little over half an hour later, he's dead. Thirty-four years ago, an assassin murdered the Swedish Prime Minister and traumatised a nation. If you think of people in Sweden, we've really never experienced any kind of national catastrophe, really, in that sense. To this day, the murder of Olaf Palma remains unsolved. But now, authorities say, there's new evidence, and they're on the verge of concluding the case. Every time somebody comes up with a new piece of evidence, it's front-page news in all of the newspapers. But after three and a half decades and thousands of theories, will we ever get an answer that satisfies a nation? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm David Aronovich. Today, murder in Stockholm. Who killed Olaf Palmer? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. My name's Oliver Moody, and I have been the Berlin correspondent of The Times for the last 18 months. Oliver, when did you first hear about the murder of Olaf Palmer? Do you know, I couldn't say for sure. It's just always been there in that firmament of Cold War things that happened just before I was born. It just appeared as footnotes in books, odd paragraphs. Yes, and it's not something that's ever really been salient in the same way that the Kennedy assassination was salient, for example. Let's go back to 1986. What was the reaction like in Sweden to that murder? Obviously, on one level, it's a tremendous shock for any country to see its prime minister assassinated. One of the people I interviewed said that that people just hadn't thought it was the sort of country where they shoot prime ministers. Sweden was outstandingly safe 
by the standards of Europe in that day. There was no equivalent to the, the Baden-Meinhof gang in Germany or the IRA in Britain. The Palmer murder is often described in Sweden as a national trauma. I like to think of the Palmer assassination as being like the Kennedy assassination without a Lee Harvey Oswald, without even the small measure of closure that you get from having a clearly defined prime suspect, even if you can never quite prove that it was him. It's the level of uncertainty, I think, that has made this so powerful even today. Saturday, the 1st of March, 1986, The Sun. Swede PM is shot dead in the street. Wife sees assassin strike. Monday, the 3rd of March, 1986, The Times. The killer of the Swedish Prime Minister, Mr Olof Palmer, was still at large last night with police baffled by the carefully planned and executed assassination. The Stockholm Police Chief, Mr Hans Holmer, described the case as a jigsaw puzzle with very small pieces. So back in 1986, after he was shot dead, who were the initial suspects? The police picked up a guy called Viktor Gunnarsson from the LaRouche movement, a slightly mad Marxist group that went so far left it ended up on the far right. That investigation took about a year to peter out, and then the policeman in charge of it got obsessed with the the PKK, the um, Kurdish movement in Turkey. But after a couple of years, his successor finally found a suspect who was really kind of worthy of attention. And this is a guy called um, Christo Petrosson, who had grown up in a middle-class family, had been a promising pupil, he'd gone to acting school and then got a head injury, and his life had been a bit derailed by that, it seems. He got into drugs and alcohol, and in 1970, 16 years before the Palmer murder, he had um, gone up to a guy in the street and apparently stabbed him at random with a bayonet and then been imprisoned for manslaughter. Petterson was put in a lineup of potential suspects, which was then filmed. And the film of the lineup was shown to Palmer's widow, Lisbeth, and she identified Petterson as the likely murderer. And was he tried? He was tried. He was convicted. He was sent to prison. But then he appealed, and the judges in the Court of Appeal quashed his conviction on the ground that there was no murder weapon, there was no real motive. And also, before Palmer's widow had watched the film, she'd been told to look out for a suspect who was an alcoholic. And uh, Pettersson was the kind of guy you would guess was an alcoholic if, if you looked at his picture. So, Pettersson, he was convicted, and then on appeal, the conviction was overturned, which leaves you where? You're really back where you started. It's a moment where a thousand conspiracy theories and wacky ideas start to bloom. Now, why is it suddenly back in the headlines? So in 2016, 30 years after the assassination itself, prosecutors announced that they were reopening the investigation in light of new evidence. And they've now announced that we can expect the final results by the end of the first half of this year, which sounds as though it means the end of June, but I don't know quite how literally to take that. Swedes should know when midsummer is, if anybody does. <laughs> Oliver, tell me a bit more about the new thing that the Swedish authorities have discovered that might change their attitude to the case. Two days after the murder, there's a group of um, young guys on a evening out going to a rock concert, I think, on a street just several hundred metres away from the crime scene. And 
One of them spotted a walkie-talkie left there lying on the ground next to some railings and didn't really think anything more of it. And then a few days later, so oblivious to the fact that the Prime Minister had been murdered, that instead of taking the device to the police, um, they just gave it away to someone as a birthday present. Three decades later, a Swedish investigative journalist heard this story and after years and years and years of trying, finally managed to track it down and obtain it. And he's handed it into police. Let me get this clear. The murder's in 1986, and they've just got a walkie-talkie that was found near the scene in 1986. Who were the people who were engineering to get this walkie-talkie available to the authorities? So this was a consortium of, or, or consortiums may be a bit of a fancy word, it was a group of investigative journalists around the famous novelist Stieg Larsson, who wrote the Millennium Trilogy, had been working on the Palmer murder for the best part of three decades. I was living in Gothenburg. I was uh, at home in my, in my bed. That's the voice of Henrik Bergren, a Swedish journalist and biographer of Olaf Palmer, recalling where he was in 1986 when he heard the news of the assassination. I had a clock radio. You remember those things, the clock radios, which you, know, you, you set them on a certain time and they turned themselves on and you, you, know, you would w- awake to what was on the radio. And I was sort of drowsily awakening and I hear somebody in a very somber voice describing the life of Olof Palme. And I'm sort of lying there and I'm thinking, this is very curious. Why are they having a program at eight o'clock on a Saturday morning about Olof Palme's life? And there was something about the voice that made me feel something was very, very wrong. And then I got up and uh, I found the newspaper outside the door and then I saw that he had been shot, you know, late at night and then I turned on the radio and the television and all that. It was a very powerful moment. If you if you think of people in Sweden post-war, I mean, I'm born in 57. I mean, we've really never experienced any kind of national catastrophe, really, in that sense. And, and you know, it, it was for the first time in my life I sort of felt that you know, I shared something with, with all fellow Swedes, regardless of sex, race, politics, ethnicity, whatever. My name is Per Persson. I'm 68 years old and I live in Värnamo in Sweden. Where were you when Olof Palme was shot? I was at the post office where we lived in Öxnehaga. And I heard him talk about, on the radio, about something, and they played really sad music, and I thought that well, somebody had died or something like that. And suddenly, I heard him say that Olof Palme, the Prime Minister of Sweden, was shot to death. I never will forget that. It was uh, unbelievable. My name is Paul Larsson. I am 39 years old. I live in Gothenburg, Sweden. I lived in... Michigan with my parents and we were traveling from Michigan to Florida in a car when we heard on the radio that Olaf Palmer was shot. My parents couldn't really believe it so they stopped at the gas station to buy a newspaper to read about it. I'm Larry Pitkekangas. I live in Malmö in Sweden. I heard that someone had been shot. I was kind of sleepy, so I thought I was still dreaming or something. 
I went to school as usual, met some friends who, like me, were in shock. Why was he killed? You know, when I was writing the book, I couldn't really say anything about the murder because I didn't know who had done it, even if I had my own, you know, ideas about it. It was unclear how his murder was connected to his life. Well, we'll come on to some theories about why he may have been killed. But Henrik, before that, can you tell me a little bit about Olaf Palmer, the man? Well, he came from the, the very top of Swedish society, the, the highest echelon, so to speak. They grew up in, in Östermalm in Stockholm, which I guess you would say maybe Mayfair or something like that in London. He, he led a very sheltered life as a, as a young person. He went to a boarding school, which is very unusual in Sweden as compared to Britain. And the family was, was a very intellectual family. It was very into arts, into literature, into the theater, culture in general, but also quite conservative family. They belonged to the old elite of, of Sweden. When he was born in 1927 and he, when he was a young man in the 1930s, Sweden took a turn towards um, social democracy, welfare, away from the old elite's alignment with Germany and looked much more to Britain and the United States. He came out of an environment that was sort of sidelined by the, by the social democrats by taking power in the 1930s. And he grew up in that environment and he didn't really show any political inclinations until he, when he was 20 or something like that. So at 20, this young man from a very conservative family becomes political. How does that happen? And what kind of politics does he espouse? The only kind of student activity he does when he's, when he's had his boarding school is actually in the literature society. And he gets a um, scholarship to go to the United States to study literature but I think he's really taken in by the United States after the war. I mean, this is the height of, let's, let's call it the American left. Roosevelt's New Deal, the trade unions are stronger than ever. And he's really taken in by that. A lot of his political energy, I think, came from being in the United States during that time. We're talking 1947-48. He came back to Sweden. And then he was brought into student politics very few people knew he was a social democrat at that time. He was just a, a student politician. Then he becomes not exactly an orthodox politician, but nevertheless a politician, becomes elected, yes. and eventually comes to lead the party. Yes, he comes in at the highest level of politics, actually, because he becomes secretary to the then prime minister of Sweden in 1953. And he's sort of the, the golden boy of the late 50s, the early 60s, and he was sort of cool. There was even a, a pop group that took name after him in Sweden, the, the Palmas. <laughs> really? <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that happened much to British politicians. Now, the Wilsons I haven't heard of. <laughs> <laughs> Would you say that, given the policies that he followed as leader of the Social Democrats as prime minister that he can be described as the architect of modern Sweden. Yes. I mean, you know, if you want to make a long story short, he, more than anybody, had this optimism and this, this energy to do this. I think a lot of the things would have happened without him, but certainly he pushed them a little bit further, maybe, than they would have been pushed. You know, people see him as a great, you know, ideologue in some sense, and that may be true, but he was also a very pragmatic politician who looked for the opportunities to, to achieve what he wanted to achieve. I'm a diehard reformist and a democratic socialist. Yes. But I, I see socialism coming about as a 
gradual educational process almost. But then as a politician, when he was in debates, he could be very cutting and very hard. So his public image was one of hard-hitting, very rhetorical. He was very skillful rhetorical. It was not much disturbed by the reality of poverty and starvation for the vast majority of people in the world. They would, it was thought, ultimately share the abundance. But he was also very cutting against uh, the opponents, so a lot of people disliked him. We have come to discuss more and more the interrelated problem areas of population, poverty and pollution. The right-wing press described him as some kind of demon coming up from the French Revolution. This was Saint-Just, who had you know, suddenly been incarnated in, in Sweden in, in the 1960s. So, so he was controversial in that sense, but almost everybody, even his opponents, say that he was, you know, on, on, on the personal level, he was very likable and charming. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Oliver, since the murder of Olaf Palmer in 1986, there's been a multitude of theories about who killed him. Can you take me through some of them? So you could start with the theory that it was the Swedish police that killed him. SAPO, the, the Swedish Security Service, or the Ustasha, a sort of neo-Nazi, ultra-nationalist Croatian organisation that it was Swedish arms dealers, that it was the Indian government, that it was a gay mafia, that it was the KGB. And my favourite one is um, that it was the Soviet film director Tarkovsky who had um, filmed a movie called Sacrifice on, on precisely the spot where Palmer was murdered a few months earlier. 
I'm going for Tarkovsky, but what are the main ones? Well, I think you can probably boil it down to about three or four. The first one would be Christel Pettersson, you've already heard about. The second one, which has been regarded as plausible by a lot of people who spent time looking into this, is a guy called Stig Engström, otherwise known as the Scandia Man, because he worked for Scandia, the Swedish insurance company, whose offices are just around the corner from where Palmer was assassinated. Engström had been a member of the centre-right moderate party, Palmer's arch-political opponents. And the theory is that this was an unpremeditated political murder, that Engström had um, walked out of the office as Palmer was coming past, seen the guy, thought, I hate your policies, pulled out a gun that he just happened to have secreted on his person and shot him. The evidence backing this theory up is, is partly that one witness to the murder said it was very possible that Engström had been the guy who had done it based on the way he looked. Palmer's son, uh, Martin, who'd been at the cinema with Palmer that night, said he'd seen a man who looked like Engström hanging around outside. Not much to go on there. I find it a bit unconvincing. There is a more convincing theory, which seems to be the one the Swedish police are now zeroing in on. And this is the one that um, Stieg Larsson, the novelist, was working on before he died. For Larsson, by, by this point, really, the, the novels for which he's so well known in Britain were just a hobby. He had been totally obsessed with digging out the Swedish far right for um, the best part of three decades and fixated on Palmer ever since the assassination. And back in 1987, a year after the murder, he'd written a 30-page memo to the police setting out this theory that Palmer's murder had been commissioned by a pro-apartheid faction in the South African uh, security services in alliance with the, the Swedish far right. I don't know how far you want to go down this rabbit hole. Or... Please take me through this rabbit hole a little bit further, since this is Stieg Larsson, and I imagine that if he'd tried to sell his theory, it would have been a bestseller. Larsson became particularly interested for years in a British connection to the alleged conspiracy, which was an expat Swedish businessman called Bertil Wedin. I hope I'm pronouncing that vaguely right, who um, used to hang out with the, um, the Conservative Monday Club in London and was thought to be passing information to several foreign intelligence services from London, including the South Africans. Wedin was very well networked with the, the Swedish right, and weeks before the murder, he vanished and turned up in northern Cyprus, which um, apparently is a notorious bolt hole because of its refusal to um, sign extradition treaties with Western countries. It has to be said he does deny any involvement or, or knowledge of the murder. But the other thing is, don't you feel that the appeal of something like the Stieg Larsson theory is that it takes the random element out of it entirely, the possibility that some guy saw the Prime Minister he had a gun and he thought, yeah, I'm going to do this. Absolutely. And I think it also takes out the, the psychiatric component, which is something that we still struggle with, even though we've seen so many murders and atrocities carried out in, in recent years by, by people with psychiatric issues. We're still very bad as societies at working out how to apportion individual responsibility and, and to work out the... We always want one fundamental root cause that makes sense for an action like this. It's very hard for us to accept that, that things are often messy. My name is Marie Person. I'm 
almost 33 years old and I live in Gothenburg, Sweden. I remember when Krista Pettersson was judged for it. I wasn't really well educated about it. I just thought it was, well, a relief. They found someone, but then all these questions came up. So I kind of lost interest, I think. And it seems like there's another person, which I haven't really heard anything about, called the Scandia Man, which is fairly new to me. I should probably read more about it. I'm not sure who killed him, but I do believe that whoever did it knew what he was doing, and I believe it was political because of political reasons. So we have Krista Pettersson, we have Stieg Engström, we have the Stieg Larsson theory about uh, apartheid. How many people are still trying to solve this? Are people, I mean, has it died? down or are people really still at it? It's died up. It's become a national hobby to the point where there are chat forums, there are meetings. Every time somebody comes up with a new piece of evidence, it's front page news in all of the Swedish newspapers. Why do you think that is? Why would people just not have got fed up with all these theories and not knowing and just said, well, we'll never know, let it go? I think the internet probably has accelerated a bit because it's let lots of people who wouldn't otherwise have been able to get involved, get involved. And I also think that it has been uh, fed to some degree by the sporadic progress of the investigation, which means every so often the um, police and the prosecutors end up sort of inadvertently spurring another wave of speculation. Although there is no shortage of people who want to fess up to the murder. I think we're on about 134 so far, although that total may have gone up in the last few months. 134 people have confessed to it. And I imagine that just as all the people who've been accused of it said they didn't do it, all the people who have confessed to it have been found not to be guilty. I think that's about right. What's your best guess about what the Swedish prosecutor is going to say or what actually happened? My impression is that the current investigation is moving in on Larsson's theory, that it was some kind of alliance between apartheid supporters within the South African security services and the Swedish far right. And the the lead prosecutor has said he thinks that Krista Pettersson was innocent. He didn't do it. He's been pretty categorical about that. However, Stefan Löfven, the um, current Swedish prime minister, thinks Pettersson did do it, or at least that's what he said a few years ago, and um, insofar as, as I can really form an opinion on it, I just think the case against Pettersson was so undermined by really Keystone Cops level police procedural mistakes that I think it would be well worth looking at in a, a more dispassionate and, and forensic light. And if, if, if I had to commit to one theory, I'd, I'd go to the, the original one, the guy who was, was actually convicted. Oliver, as far as you can tell, what will the closing of this case mean for Sweden? I suppose the first question is, even if the Swedish authorities say, we know the answer, will the Swedish people regard the case as closed? There is a lot of scepticism, or was at least among the people that I interviewed when I was doing the story, that any answer that the prosecutors could come up with now would be satisfactory and conclusive and, and bring that, that element of national closure. I think the debate has, has proliferated so far out of control. 
in the absence of really cast iron, indisputable proof that one person did it, the prosecutors are going to struggle really to, to end it once and for all. I think the best upshot of that conclusion would be a chance to look back at Palmer as a politician. In some sense, you're giving the murder much too credit when you spend so much time focusing on the murder rather than on who he was. I mean, it's like his life, you know, ends up in a shadow because everybody's so obsessed about the murder, and especially young people. The only thing they know about Olof Palme is that he was murdered in a spectacular way. But I would like to tell them that here we actually had this interesting, great politician, and he did something that very few politicians are capable of. That is both be very hard-nosed, very pragmatic, but at the same time have ideals about what he wanted to accomplish. And it seems to me that politicians today are either opportunists and they get into power, or they are rosy-headed idealists who who lose. And I like the fact that he, he could play both ends of the field, so to speak reassess him maturely for who he was and and what he did and not just how he died because he really more than anyone else was the political architect of, of what we think about today when we think about Sweden as a country. He's not assessed in its proper historical context because all anybody has been able to think about is is how he was killed. Exactly. The prosecutor might say, of course, and the authorities might say, we've got the answer. But it seems unlikely, doesn't it, that that would lead to, let's say, a trial of any kind, given the time that's gone past. We already know that the man originally convicted of the murder, Krista Pettersson, is dead, that the man fancied by many amateur Palmer investigators, the Scandia man, Stig Engström, is also dead. It is entirely possible that the person identified by the investigation as the murderer will also be dead. We are now at half a lifetime's distance from the murder. And it's very, very difficult, I think, to bring a criminal case of of any substance at this sort of remove. I thought that it was this sort of down and out guy who was named Christer Pettersson, which incidentally is very similar to the name of the (laughs) The policeman who's now in head of the investigation, his name is Christer Petersen. I sort of went for Occam's razor. I thought that the simplest solution is probably the most likely, but I'm not sure. And now we're sort of waiting for this you know, mystery to unravel. I'm not sure you're going to satisfy all these people who have all these theories. Thirty-four years on, It feels whatever happens with the Palmer case, questions and theories will continue. But maybe a bigger question is whether the unsolved mystery has damaged the faith Swedes have in their institutions. Famously, trust in public authority is extremely high by European standards in Sweden. So I think the the long-term legacy of what was by any standards a really badly botched police investigation has been pretty minimal in terms of how much trust Swedish people place in, in, in the people who, who run their, their country. And for Henrik Berglund, has the assassination of Palmer cast a shadow over Swedish democracy? I, I don't feel that Sweden is a place where you go around shooting prime ministers. 
But what did disturb me a bit, actually, was I had this idea that, you know, we have a very stable state, a very stable bureaucracy, a very rule-bound bureaucracy. It goes back to the 17th century. But in the one or two years after Palma, there were a lot of weird things going on because people were so hysterical about solving the crime. Things got back on track again. But our, our you know, I would say that we're a bit unused we can't really imagine catastrophes, you know. We've had such a wonderful, brilliant 20th century managing to stay out of two wars and doing so well, and that we are ill-equipped for sudden surprises, and there may be some truth to that. My name is Anneli Persson. I am 34 years old, and I live in Sweden, Gothenburg. I also wish that they find the man still alive, so we won't be left with all these questions that we have now. Why was this done? Who did it? For what reason? My name is Max Bengtsson. I'm 29 years old. I grew up in a small village in the south of Sweden called Sjöbo. I think when they conclude the case, and if they do find a specific person, or conclude that there is a specific person behind it, I don't know if it really would feel concluded anyway. It feels so much after the fact. I hope the murderer is still alive and I want to know the reason why Olof Palme was killed. I grew up with this feeling that Sweden was kind of well protected and safe. Things were fair and in order. It really changed the country deeply. That sense of innocence disappeared. There will always be people uh, wanting to tell this story again and again and again. I hope it will be some sort of conclusion. So I think we need that, that we can close this case forever. We need that. After all those years, we really need that. All the people we've discussed during this episode in connection with the Palmer killing have always maintained their innocence. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, David Aronovich, and my guests Henrik Bergren, a journalist and biographer of Olaf Palmer, and Oliver Moody, the Times Berlin correspondent. You can read more of Oliver's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print. Also thanks to Per Larsen, Anneli Persson, Per Persson, Per Lofberg, Max Bengtsson, Larry Pitka-Kangas, and Mary Persson. The producers were Will Rowe and Ben Mitchell. The executive producer is Leo Hornack, and the deputy executive producer is Poppy Damon. Sound design was by Nicholas Rawfast, music by Breakmaster Cylinder. If you like what you heard, please leave us a review. You can subscribe for free. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, and more. Also, in these uncertain times, you can keep up to date and well informed on the coronavirus and so much more every day with a digital subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times. Visit thetimes.co.uk slash subscribe today to find out more. See you soon.